Before history is written, it's played. Before it's frozen in time, it's fought one shift at a time. Before it's etched in silver, it's carved in ice. What happens next will last forever. The Stanley Cup Final on ABC and ESPN Plus begins Saturday. Now's the time to save 30% on wedding jewelry, only on BlueNile.com. Make sure your wedding ring is the one with your pick of diamond and lab-grown diamond bands, all hand-finished and graded for excellence. Or surprise her with something blue she'll love for life, like a stunning pair of sapphire earrings. Blue Nile's jewelry experts are available 24-7 to help, from fit questions to style advice. Right now, get up to 30% off at BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, click Granger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Hello, I'm Dave Hendon. And I'm Michael McMullen. Welcome to the Snooker Scene Podcast. This may be a fiasco. I know a lot of people will say, well, this is a what's new, but um, mm. I'm in Milton Keynes. The last one we tried to do when I was in this hotel was a fiasco. Um, I actually had to edit it because it was about two minutes where there was no- nothing could mm. be heard. It was like one of the Nixon tapes. Um, so uh, we'll see. You know, we'll, we'll do our best. What, what can we do? You know, we're honest people, just about. Uh, but anyway, that's all, mm. a side, that's, all yeah. a, that's all a side issue because, let's be honest, it's Jordan Brown's world. And we just live in it. What an incredible! Extra- what an extraordinary thing that was. Welsh Open champion. I just saw him at breakfast about an hour ago. So I'm now in Milton Keynes, as I say. Um, um, you know, was, I couldn't shake his hand, which was a shame. You know, you had to sort of even stand at a distance to congratulate him. But clearly, I, th- I get the feeling it still hasn't quite sunk in, actually. Um, and people were going up to him and, you know, doing the same thing. Uh, what a lovely story. I don't think it's sunk in with anyone. I mean, for me... It's the most surprising winner of any tournament ever. I mean, Dave Harold was ranked slightly lower, but I mean, he was really well established as one of the best amateurs in the game just before, you know, the game went open. And you felt he was always destined to be a top player. Jordan Brown, don't forget, turned pro. I think it was over a decade ago and then lasted only one year. He was a bit unlucky, actually. He lost a few deciders that year. I think he lost one match on the black and there were so few tournaments anyway. And then he spent all those years trying to get on. And you just sort of felt at his age, he was maybe going to get a few good results along the way. Great for him that he qualified for the Crucible. Nobody saw him as a tournament winner. And for him to do it in the the final frame in a single visit against someone who's regarded by many as the greatest player of all time, you just couldn't make it up. So for me, it was actually the best tournament of the whole season. I thought there were some really uh, good finishes, some wonderful individual performances, some great stories. It was really good that it was actually in Wales, and even more so that a Welsh player went such a long way in the tournament. His semi-final was obviously a bit of a damp squib, but Brown's one, even though it was equally one-sided, was intriguing because of the story and the way it was unfolding. And then, well, what an amazing final we had. So for me, the Welsh Open. You've cut out a little bit there. I think we got most of that. Yeah, I, I, I don't even know if you've stopped speaking, but I agree with you. I mean, it was an incredible, um, just an incredible story. 
people talk about Joe Johnson beating Steve Davis. That was an incredible story as well. But the slightly different um, dynamic there. Obviously, Steve had lost the final the year before. So that, you have to feel, was a slight factor in what happened in 1986. Also, Joe was in the top 16. You know, he wasn't just a nobody. Mm. He wasn't just a nobody. Um, yeah, what Jordan did was incredible. I mean, when he was first on tour, this was pre-Barry Hearn. So it was, they were the dark days. There were six ranking events. And, of course, he only had a one-year ticket. So if you dropped off, you dropped off. And a lot of one-year pros did because, obviously, they didn't have the two-year points. It's pretty pretty obvious. Uh, we did a column. I did a column with him in snooker scene on, on the tour with Jordan Brown. And, and it, it was essentially a tale of near misses and, you know, clearly just didn't have enough matches to establish himself. As you say, then drifted away. Mm. I think it's well documented. He worked at a petrol station doing honest work. Uh, he said himself, you know, he kind of drifted away from snooker, or at least taking snooker seriously, but then had that sort of wake-up call that a lot of people have. If it's not now, it's never, and has worked exceptionally hard. That's the thing, you know, he's practised hard. I think it's clearly helped that he's practised with Mark Allen, um, not just for his game, but for the sort of advice he would have got. But I'd said to him, actually, Jordan, at breakfast, I said, one of the things people don't realise is how much snooker you played. He's not some kid. And all the match play that we haven't mm. seen in all those Northern Ireland amateur events, tournaments that he's won that you know we haven't seen apart from the people who were there, that put him in good stead. And he was very, very cool in the decider. Um, and as you say, to beat O'Sullivan, who'd played so well in the tournament. I mean, Ronnie, I thought from about round two was going to win it. I just thought he was playing so well. To beat him over two sessions is an extraordinary achievement. And uh, yeah, it's the sort of story that really only sport can throw up. Um, that's credible because we saw it happen. Wait, what's and, and it's film. just the beginning of this. Gone. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, but I mean, the, the 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 thing is, I mean, in one sense, it's just the beginning of the story because what happens now? I mean, does he become, say, Bob Chaperon or Tony Jones? Now they were much higher ranked, but it was still a big surprise when they won ranking events, and they didn't really do anything much after that. So is that what's going to happen, or will it be more like Sean Murphy again? I know he was much younger, but he won his first ranking title happened to be the biggest of the lot completely out of the blue and from that moment on it's basically been the top player which way is it going to go now i mean this you've got to look at it and say that the fact he's in the players championship and there's a great chance now of being in the tour championship as well you know that that sort of thing will certainly help him lean more towards the murphy model because being in that environment playing you know top players in big prestigious elite events like that can only help him along the way so amazing story but fascinating to see where it goes from here and the other thing as well what a season it's been for finals the european masters final selby and gould fantastic the two trump robertson finals that both went to deciders as well including the uk final which was incredible and you know came down to that amazing finish on the pink so four deciders and you even look at other finals the grand prix where lazowski you know tried to turn it around against trump didn't quite happen for him the Masters final where Higgins really should have won it. But, you know, Jan got the better of him in the end. And what a great story that was. Northern Ireland, brilliant final as well. 9-7, as it always seems to be now between those two. <laughs> and even the Scottish Open final, which, you know, was pretty one-sided, but a great narrative there between. What a fantastic season for finals and still the chance for a few more to come. Well, Alpha Bonzi sort of asked the question you asked. He said... Uh... He said, if only there'd been a crowd to applaud Jordan Brown lifting the trophy, I'm over the moon for him. But how does he ensure he doesn't become a one-hit wonder? And how did he hold himself together through the dark days when he was off the tour? Well, the, the, the one-hit wonder thing, I mean, my feeling on this is, even if he didn't win another tournament, he can't, you know, he will remember, yeah. this, he'll remember this till his dying breath. It, it's, it, it's not necessarily, mm. I mean, look, he wants to go on and build from this, I'm sure. And I'm sure he will put the work in 
to try and do that. But if he doesn't, it doesn't matter. It's this is a moment. This is why you play snooker for moments like this. And if it never comes again, so what? A lot of people would never get close to this. Um, in terms of how he held himself together, well, he just did honest work. I mean, you know, this petrol station thing has been in the news a lot. You know, that's an honest job. You're going to work mm. every day. You're putting in the hours. You're serving people. Um, you've got to make, you know, like everybody, he had to pay the bills. Um, and he found a way to do that. But I think also what it shows is, and, and certainly I think from a, from a place like Northern Ireland with such a history of, strong history of snooker, if it's in your blood, it's in your blood. And you will try and pursue it. And, and like I say, there, there was some crossroads he came to where he just thought, it's either this for the rest of my life, a sort of ordinary life, as it were, or I pursue my dream. He pursued his dream and it's come true. And I think, well, it just, it's just a fact everyone's happy for him. And I think it's worth saying as well, uh, crediting Ronnie O'Sullivan for the way he spoke afterwards. And I can tell you, mm. that, I, I can tell you that wasn't um, just for the cameras, because literally, again, at breakfast here, um, he came in later on and went straight over to Jordan and continued the praise, you know, just just the first time he'd seen him since the final uh, just reiterating everything he'd said. There were no cameras at breakfast, obviously. You know, he meant it. And that was good, I think. And that, that must have meant a lot to Jordan. I think he was he sort of said, wasn't he, that he was slightly fired up by the things Ronnie had said at the Crucible. But that's good. It's kind of paid off. And there'll be a lot mm. of low-ranked players now who'll be looking at this saying, well, it, you know, if he can do it, I can. And one, of the, one last thing I'll say about Jordan as well, he's a bit old school. He's not on social media all day. He's ta- he takes the game seriously. He practices hard. He's a proper snooker man, actually. It's interesting, you know, Doug Mountjoy passed away before, just before the tournament. And there are sort of parallels. Obviously, he was a champion of the past who'd come back to form. Um, but what did he do? He went and won the next tournament on ITV. Here we are at the Players' Championship on ITV. Mm. Who's to say? You just don't know, do you? You never know. He's, he's riding a wave at the moment. Yeah. It's, it's funny, like, you know, you mentioned there about the comments that, that Ronnie made at the Crucible that there was so much attention to. That was also mentioned after the defeat against Aaron Hill hmm. all the season. I mean, Aaron said, you know, I noticed those comments, and at the time I thought, oh, I'm going to show them one day, because it turned out that day happened to be, well, basically the, the following month. So it's uh, come back to Haunter now a couple of times this season against two players from this island, in fact, one from the extreme north and one from the extreme south of it. So he might regret that he said those things now. And, I mean, from, from Jordan's point of view, I think he's pretty much the perfect age, actually, to build on this, because he'll know at 33, he's lived a bit of life, as you say, he's had a, you know, a proper, honest job for all that time, so he knows what the other side is. Now he's got a chance to actually, you know, get some serious money behind him as much as anything else. Um, and he'll know at 33, he doesn't have, you know, maybe another 20 years to do it. But equally so, he's probably still young enough to have a good five or six years if he, if he can build on it. And you know, the, the fact is, he's only really been playing seriously, you know, according to himself, just for the last couple of years. And look what he's done. Look at the rate of improvement he's shown over the last year. So it didn't... He did get to the Crucible, as I said. He then had had a quarterfinal in, I was about to say in Berlin, in the German Masters only a few weeks ago. So it has been steps, but there have been big steps, big leaps forward that have come, you know, at very quick intervals over the last year or so. So fascinating to see where he goes from here. But as you say... Whatever happens, even if he never never wins another match for the rest of his life, you know his career is a success now because he's won you know a big ranking event and beaten Ronnie O'Sullivan in the final of it. Champion of champions to look forward to as well. Just finally on the mm. Welsh Open, uh, well not quite finally but uh, penultimately, uh, I spoke to a few people about the Celtic Manor, but I was interested because there were some comments about the tables. Most, pretty much all of them said the tables were heavier. It was more humid in the arena. It had a, you know, things like a lower ceiling make a difference uh, apparently. And mm. and the acoustics, I mean, if you watch it on TV, everything kind of sounded very, very heavy, actually. 
Um, that's a new challenge, though. It's not necessarily a bad thing. It's, it's diff just different conditions, and you, players have to adapt. Uh, Ronnie seems to be the best at that of anyone, um, and obviously Jordan didn't seem to have a problem. Uh, people seem to like the place. I spoke to Alan McManus. He, he enjoyed it there. Um, so they're going back there for the Tour Championship. Obviously, that's a different event. It's just one table. Um, so, uh, you know, it's good. I suppose it's good that, that Snooker has, has other options. Uh, now, Dara Breen, mm. Dara Breen on, on the subject of the Welsh Open, he said, Hi, Hey, guys, loving the podcast. Would like to talk about the main camera shot in Snooker. You see, there's no other podcast that gets questions like this. Um, he said, at this week's Welsh Open, I have the option of watching the BBC or Eurosport. Although Eurosport's coverage in the studio and commentary is clearly the better option. Thank you, Dara. I found myself watching on the BBC most of the time because they have a more overhead angle to the table. I understand Eurosport need a flatter camera angle to the table in order to show sponsorship logos on the set. I think it would be a better option to have logos on the edge of the table. Or somebody mentioned in a past podcast, even a logo in the clock. What are your opinions on this? Well, far bit from me, uh, Dara, to to shoot you down, but it's not true what you've said because it's the same feed. It really is. Um, yeah. BBC Wales are the host broadcaster. They provide the feed for all the international broadcasters, including Eurosport. There's no, it's the same camera. It's the same feed. It's the same angle. So now maybe, I don't know on, on your television, it may look slightly different, but I promise you it's exactly the same angle. It has to be because we're just taking the, the BBC feed. Um, now on, well, a, on a, on a more general point, it's certainly true. If you look at old snooker, the angle has changed, uh, and it's for the reason you say it is to get the, the the sort of logos in. I think the the sort of the flatter angle is slightly more distorted, but that may only be because we're so used to watching the old angle. Um, so it is slightly flatter, I agree. But in terms of the Welsh Open, the, the the two broadcasters you mentioned had exactly the same angle. Well, maybe it's just the settings he has on the two channels mm. on his television. Maybe it's something to do with that. I mean, I'm an expert in this, of course, because we've yeah. discussed before the uh, the the ITV glow. Yeah. That I used to get back back in the day. You can still see a bit of that uh, somewhere along the way, but <laughs> that's that's probably all it is, if it's anything. But I, I'm not so sure about adverts on the side of the table. I mean, one of my big sporting bugbears is those ridiculous um, what would they be called? Like strobe advertising at the side mm. of football pitches. Mm. I mean, it's basically designed purely to distract you from the match itself. Mm. I mean, you'd hate to see that ever coming in in snooker. It's bad enough in football. Okay, well, um, we'll move on because it was announced yesterday that uh, by Boris Johnson, the British Prime Minister, the, the various sort of steps out of lockdown. And of course, snooker fans are very mm. interested to see when fans are allowed back. And it's bad news, actually, in terms of the World Championship, because it, it's going to be, well, I think May the 17th was mentioned as the earliest date where fans could go back to sp live sport. Mm. Obviously, our World Championship finishes two weeks before that. I've been very surprised by the number of people just blithely stating oh, well, we'll just move it back again uh, to a later date. Um, let's have a reality check here, OK? This is the real world. Will Snooker cannot just snap their fingers to the BBC and say, we want 17 days in June, OK? We're moving the World Championship to June. Give us 17... It doesn't work like that, OK? The only reason, and it is the only reason we were able to have the World Championship in August last year, was because those two weeks, the schedules, the BBC schedules had been cleared for the Olympic Games, which never happened. OK, you move into June. What are we going to do? Say to, mm. Wim say to Wimbledon, oh, we're not going to give you all the coverage this year because the snooker lot have, have moved their dates or the European football or even later into the summer Olympic Games. I spoke. If anyone's interested in the real world as opposed to sort of Twitter fantasy. OK, I spoke yesterday to the operations executive of Will Snooker and he told me this. OK, and this is from the horse's mouth. He said, we are exploring every possible option, but. The, by far the most likely option is the World Championship goes ahead at the Crucible in April, unfortunately, without a crowd. That's not to say they won't lobby the government potentially to be part of a... Because there will possibly be test events. 
So, I mean, last year, we on the last day, in fact, the first day and the last day, there were reduced crowds. I'm sure they will lobby the government to potentially do the same. So it's not impossible to be people there. But by far the most likely outcome is that it will take place in the announced dates without a crowd. You can, OK, you can try and move it, but I've already mentioned the BBC problem. But also, you know, it's not fit, set in stone that, that these uh, restrictions will be lifted at that date. It may be if, if infection rates go up, they'll have to push it back again. What do we do then? Um, mm. but, but in the real world, you know, in a, and we're, I mean, I'm heavily involved in snooker, but a lot of people just have snooker blinkers on. You can't just say, oh, we'll move it and the BBC will show 17 days whenever we want. It doesn't work like that, I'm afraid. It just doesn't. Yeah, and as you say, I mean, that was the point I was going to make. I don't see any real reason to move it. At least keep it in its traditional date, because as you say, you can move it back to later in the summer and it could still be the same situation. I mean, it's 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 very sad, really. I don't, I mean, we all knew in some vague way last year it was a possibility that things might still be the same for the 2021 championship. I don't think anyone really thought that we'd get to this season's championship and, you know, things wouldn't be back to normal. I mean, uh, most of us really didn't see it all continuing this long. And it'll be worse this time because it did make a big difference last year that there was a crowd in, you know, for the sessions, all four sessions of the final. Yes, it was a reduced crowd, but at least it was something. How, you know, sad is that going to be to be watching the world final and nobody there watching? Absolutely just heartbreaking, really. And particularly so if someone wins it for the first time, um, you know, because this is what you do. You dream about winning the world championship in front of a big crowd and everyone cheering. It'd be a bit soulless to go and achieve your life's dream. And there's absolutely nobody there. It's an empty arena. I mean, that'd be really bad. Worst thing, of course, would be if there was a first time champion, we'd have to talk about the curse of the crucible next year. <laughs> well, here, well, here's OK. Like I say, it's not impossible that they may... There may be some test of we may come under the you know auspices of a test event, so it's not impossible to be some sort of audience, but it seems very unlikely. People have also said, oh, it'll be in Milton Keynes. It won't be. Uh, like, and we had all this last year. Sheffield had the contract for the World Championship. Mm. If the, yeah. the World Championship is going to be at the Crucible, it's ninety nine percent going to be in the dates that are given. Things can change, of course. Um, and listen, if the BBC came to World Snook and said, look, we'll move it, that's different. But that does, that seems very very unlikely. What I will say, though, is, and this, I think, is good news for snooker fans who want to attend live. I think when, if the, this roadmap is stuck to and the dates are stuck to, I think when crowds are allowed back, I think you'll see tournaments possibly move forward in the calendar because they want to get the ticket mm. revenue in. You know, I mean, it, it, the two years World Championship, they basically lost out on five million quid, two and a half million each year. Yeah. So it's a lot of money that's not coming into the game. So you may see, you know what Barry's like, he's a great innovator. Barry Hearn, you may see tournaments sort of springing up maybe in the summer even. We'll, you know, we'll see. Obviously, again, it depends on broadcasters and, and dates and whatever. But I think, you know, people, I can completely understand why people wouldn't obviously will be disappointed because there'd be people going there, well, since the start of the Crucible, you know, and it's a, it's an annual pilgrimage. It's a festival that everyone meets up once a year. It's great. You know, obviously, we've been there. It's fantastic. But, you mm. know, we can only work within the law. And I think, you know, the idea that you can just shift it is, is, is a little bit of fantasy. It happened last year because the Olympics were scrapped. Um, now, at the moment, the Olympics are going ahead. But like I say, you know, we could try and move it and then find out we, we still can't have crowds later in the year. I think it's going to have to go ahead in its original slot. But, of course, the big World Championship debate last week was about the, these Friday starts um, that, that uh, you, were, you were asking about. And Dave Tyndall... Now, Dave Tyndall... Um, Kept a diary as a boy, okay? So he's uh, he's he's delved back. <laughs> That's surprising, isn't it? Yeah, he's delved back. Now, here, here's what he says, okay? In response to your query about why the 1985 World Championship finished on a Sunday, 
I decided to check my diary for that year for potential clues. Firstly, yes, it did start on Friday, April the 12th, and as you stated, my diary confirms a good Friday that week was the week before, on April the 5th. Yeah. yeah. Any, anyway, on that opening Friday, I write that Steve Davis beat Neil Foles 10-8, while the following day, Liverpool drew 2-2 in Man United in the FA Cup semis after a late Ronnie Wheel and equaliser. On the Sunday, I note that Terry Griffiths and Tony Mio qualified for the second round, and Bernard Langer won the US Masters. As for the first day of the wow. final, as for the first day of the final on Saturday the twenty eighth, I scrawled that Steve Davis led Dennis Taylor nine seven after leading seven nil. Not exactly given uh, given that the first day the full coverage there, Dave, but you know we, you weren't to know. Uh, and he said while Liverpool drew nil nil at home with Ipswich on Sunday, I write Dennis Taylor becomes world champion by beating Steve Davis on the final black of the thirty fifth frame. I also note the sixty thousand pound prize money that t- Taylor trousered and the fact that Ayrton Senna won the Portuguese Grand Prix. As to why White finished on Sunday, I have two possible theories. Theory one. On the Monday, I note that I watched The Young Ones. This was getting over six million views at the time, so maybe the BBC didn't want the embassy final to clash with Rip Mail throwing lentils at Neil and decided to end the snooker on a Sunday. Theory two. I note that ten days after the final, it was the 40th anniversary of VE Day. Did the BBC shunt everything in their schedules, including the snooker, to give VE Day extra build-up and attention? Or is it connected to the bank holiday being moved that year which was the reason Michael suggested in 1995. The bank holiday in 85 was Monday, May the 6th, eight days after the World mm. Snooker Final, yeah. and two days before VE Day. Perhaps like the JFK assassination, we'll never know. That second theory uh, holds water. And of course, the thing as well is, uh, in those days, all the snooker was produced in-house by the BBC. And their outside broadcast unit, if they were covering VE Day, I guess would have been stretched quite severely. if that, Because the, the World Championship then was like, you know, huge operation in-house. Now it's outsourced to IMG. Back then, the BBC did it themselves. So maybe it was just a logistical thing. They said, look, we we can't sort of, you know, we can't sort of do the two events so close together. We're getting closer to the truth, I feel. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But but, but I also feel we'll probably never quite get to it. Mm. But never mind all that. I mean, this is the most exciting thing since the diaries of Joseph Goebbels were revealed back in 1992. <laughs> I mean, I remember at, at the time I was I was uh, coming up to my leaving cert, which would be the Irish equivalent of the A-levels. And you had to pick a special topic to really get deep into in history. And I actually picked Goebbels because of it. I was very interested in that. And then, lo and behold, his diaries come out in the Sunday Times. But never mind that. I mean, who wouldn't want to read Dave Tyndall's diaries? We've got a little teaser there. I want to read the whole thing now. Yeah, and I think, uh, to be fair to Dave, you know, he's a less controversial figure than, than Joseph Goebbels. Well, at the moment. <laughs> uh, you know by next week, Dave will have played a, a whole tournament featuring Nazi <laughs> war criminals. Anyway, anyway, uh, let's move on. Um, Tom Milliard gets in touch. He says, before I get into the meat of my message, I would like to say a huge thanks for this podcast. Having only discovered it recently, it really fits all my ideas of what a good po- podcast should be. Light-hearted, but full of great anecdotes and facts. He doesn't say he doesn't say also barely listable uh, because of the Internet. Anyway, he says yeah. he says as a Brit living abroad in Poland, I'm fairly hard pressed to find good snooker conversation. So the podcast podcast offers the perfect place for all the niche topics we like to hear about. Well, thank you, Tom. He says, uh, while I've listened back to many of the podcasts, apologies if I've repeated any questions, topics previously covered. My question refers to players income. While it's easy to document and find the prize money of players, I've, I was very curious to as to additional income the players may earn. Frankly, I have no idea how much a player could generate through advertising space, promotional tours, equipment deals, etc., etc. I'm talking pre-COVID, of course. I was curious if you could shed any light on this, ballpark figures, when talking about top players, for example, Judd Trump, and also lower-ranked players. With plenty of players earning 20 to 50k per season prize money, I was wondering if they supplemented this somehow. Take Fergal O'Brien as your example player. Well, 
who else were we going to take? Well, it, it, it depends on who you are, obviously. If you're one of the top players, say Ronnie O'Sullivan, Judd Trump, and you're on TV all the time and you're, you're, you've got a profile, then you can demand a lot of money, certainly through logo deals. In recent years, players have had sort of deals with Chinese companies in particular. Now, we don't know the exact figures they get, but the, I'd imagine there's quite a bit of competition for that logo space. So, you know, they'd be pulling in five figures guaranteed for those. Um in terms of exhibitions, again, top players can earn a lot of money. I know, I know a top player who can earn, you know, ten grand a night doing doing exhibitions. But you go down the rankings, it's harder to obviously command that fee. It's all about your position in the game. So it's a little bit chicken and egg. You know, you've got to be earning the big money on the table to then be earning the big money off the table. Um, but yeah, there are other players like Mark Williams wears that Ron Skinner and Sons logo. Now I don't think Mark would mind me saying that he doesn't get paid fortunes for that, but it's a sort of loyalty thing for him. They've always supported him right from the early days, and and he's still supporting them now. Um, I'm always amazed when you see top players turn up without any logos, other than the tournament logo. You think, you know, what? Surely, you know, you be, you can sort of put yourself out there, or your manager, if you've got one, can put yourself out there and uh, and get you some sort of deal because they're allowed to wear. I think I'm right in saying they're allowed to wear one on the waistcoat and one on the sort of sleeve now. Um, so it can add up. I mean, but again, it, it, money goes to money, and the, the players who are earning the big money because they are recognisable and they're on the TV all the time, they're the, the the players who command the big logo deals. It was interesting actually. Jordan was wearing, I think, the petrol station where he worked. Actually, um, he had on his on his waistcoat for the final. Now I'm sure they're not paying him fortunes, but yeah. it, but it may cover expenses. You know, it may cover his hotel, it may cover his flights. So it's money that he's not having to dip into from what he's earning on the table. Yeah, and sometimes I think. You talk about managers going out and getting sponsors there. Very often, the manager is the sponsor because mm. your manager might be someone who runs a local business or whatever. Um, the uh, It's funny you mentioned Fergal there because he had one of the most you know, fascinating logos, if you can have a fascinating logo, if that can actually be <laughs> such a thing. Um, probably about 10 years ago now, he was wearing a logo of uh, Larkin's Spar, which is based shop i know where it is like it's not that far from where i used to live when i lived in dublin and i remember seeing him play in china and i thought this is just bizarre like he's playing on the other side of the world and he's wearing a logo of what's basically a local convenience store so i don't know maybe he had some connection with it or whatever i remember stephen fry actually being on during the world championship one year and he was being interviewed and he's a huge snooker fan and i've actually sat next to him at the crucible on final night a few years ago and he absolutely loves the game and he was saying how hilarious he found it that, you know, you have this massive world sport and you have, as you say, things like Ron Skinner and mm. Sons, mm. you know, uh, on players' waistcoats. But the thing is, you know, it's probably not as easy as just going out and getting the sponsor. I mean, I, I wouldn't have the faintest idea. Now, I'm not part of the business world. That wouldn't be my scene at all. But, you know, maybe other people are better equipped. But how, how exactly does one go about? I mean, do you go out into the town centre and shout out any sponsors around? I mean, well, this just, is, yeah, like, no, it's a good point. And, and for lower rank players, it all depends. You see, this is the thing. Um, you don't, obviously you go into, say, last week's Welsh Open, and let's just pick a player at random. Let's say Ian Burns, okay, a sort of mid, mid-ranking player. Now, he'll look at the draw and he'll look at who's playing in round one and he'll know he won't be on television. It's not going to be a match on TV. But say he wins that match and he plays, I don't know, John Higgins, that may be on TV. Um, and if it's on TV... He potentially can then get a sponsor because it's exposure going around around the world. It's on BBC, it's on Eurosport, China, all around the world on Matchroom Live. Um, but it, it's all dependent on that exposure. If you're on table six and no one can see it, why would any sponsor pay to sponsor you? So actually, getting on that TV table is massive they, for, well, for these lower rank players. Back actually to... Yeah, yeah. And what I was going to say as well, I think some of the uh, sort of middle-ranking players 
who were part of management stables. I mean, they were in a great scene. I mean, you think of, um, you know, in the heyday of, well, I mean, there's so many names, didn't it? Q Masters, TSN, all the rest of them. Um, they were able to do deals for all their sponsors. Now, obviously, the likes of Stephen Hendry and for a time, actually, Ronnie O'Sullivan and uh, Mark Williams as well, of course. They were the ones who benefited most from the deals with the likes of, I don't know, say, Sweater Shop, Highland Spring, all those deals that they used to do. But it would always be included as part of the deal that the lower ranked players would still get something out of it. So that was the way to do it in those days. But you don't really have those big management stables now. And of course, even a lot of the very best players don't have managers at the moment. So it, it seems actually the best way to get a sponsor is in China, because we yeah. see a number of the top I mean, you know, the big stars in Britain, but they're colossal stars in China. And of course, all the tournaments are being shown there and it's a much, much bigger country than the UK. So that seems to be where um, some of the top players get it from. You, you think back, I mean, the absolute heyday of this sort of thing, was Steve Davis, uh, when he was in his prime back in the 80s. Uh, now, that was at a time when you weren't even allowed to wear logos during matches. I mean, it was basically just a blank black waistcoat. But he still had deals with, I think, Courage Brewery and uh, certainly with equipment companies as well. I mean, that was a big thing. I mean, any time there was a new world champion, they'd do a big Q deal with, you know, Riley's or someone like that. But, you know, the, the trade has really suffered now, you know, with a lot fewer clubs and a lot fewer people playing the game. Those lucrative uh, equipment and Q sponsorship deals just. Or I remember Ken Doherty, actually, when he won the world championship, there was a lot of talk about the sort of deals he was going to do. But he said about six months later, it hasn't really happened. All I've really got out of it is a free phone. And I remember him sort of grumbling. Uh, you know, plenty of people want me to do stuff for nothing. Um, so it's just not the same sort of scene nowadays well, no, in terms of getting it. I think the thing is, though, to, to sort of answer the question briefly, essentially, if you're a top player, you're going to be in demand for good money. If you're a lower-ramp mm. player, though, you, you and you play on television, you can, I think, and we do see players get sort of maybe short-term sponsors, but actually, even though it's not a lot of money, like I said, it'll pay your expenses, it'll pay your, your, your travel, your accommodation. Mm. It's not you're not dipping into prize money for that. So, yeah, getting on the TV is everything, and, and that's another discussion for another time about how the TV matches are apportioned. But um, as I say, that's mm. for, that's for another time. Uh, slightly related is the dress code, I guess. We've had two emails on this. It seems to be something that people are very interested in, actually. Jason Phillips says, "I'm often pondering the evolution of the dress code for the different tournaments." I wonder if there's a definitive history of the many changes, or is it niche enough for your podcast to cover it? And Ryan, Ryan Freeman adds, just a couple of quick questions in regards to snooker players' attire. Over the years, it feels like more players have gone for the black T-shirt and black waistcoat look, as opposed to the traditional white shirt and black waistcoat, which, barring a few exceptions, seems to be a staple for players in the past. Do you have any musings on why you think this is? And on a side question, and this is a big if, said, if you two were professional snooker players, what colour <laughs> would your shirt and waistcoat combination be? Well, we'll come to that shortly. But, um, of course, in the old days, by which I mean the 80s, they used to wear the sort of lounge shirt attire in the in the afternoon. So they wear a proper tie yeah. proper tie in the afternoon and then the bow tie at night. Uh, that kind of just, just got phased out. I suppose fashion's changed. The truth is, actually, I mean, the, the dress code hasn't changed that much. It's still smart attire. Last week they didn't wear waistcoats. I don't think that was a, a big deal either way. I think, you know, it, it didn't really detract from anything. Didn't necessarily add to anything either. It's just, just a sort of branding exercise for the home nations. Um, yeah, so it, the truth is the, the dress code hasn't changed that much. I think, you know, you get to the World Championship, you like to see them in the in the waistcoats and bow ties. Players have the option, you know, what colour shirts to wear. I mean, Dominic Dale one year turned up in a, in a white waistcoat and a, and a red shirt. And I think his hair was blonde, but that's Dominic. Um, yeah. In terms of what I'd wear, I think I think you can't go wrong with black in general, can you? You know, because it just you know black is slimming, as they say, and um, 
yeah, and I think you know it's kind of smart. But I, I, I have to be honest, it's not something I've really ever, ever given much thought to. Yeah, well, you know, when when I make my eagerly awaited mm. uh, bid for uh, fame on the seniors tour, which is what I'm putting my hopes on now, yeah. I'll have to deal with these things. No, uh, I, I, well, I, I'd be kind of a classic um, black waistcoat and white shirt sort of man. But right. then, on the other hand, I have had experience of being under TV lights, and I sweat so much under them. Hmm. So if you're uh, and you've rings under your under your armpits, you know, sorry to get so graphic about it now. Yeah. And of course, that's really going to be exposed on a, on a white shirt. So I think I'd probably go for the black one as well. I mean, back in the day when you, you're talking about there, when they used to have the the, the lounge suits. Uh, it was optional. I mean, you, you could wear the sort of bow tie for every session if you wanted to. Um, but the only one you had to wear it for was the evening. But, of course, they still have that now in some tournaments. Yeah. They have the, 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 the lounge suits all the time. But it's something there's so much talk about. But I remember when they brought in for the Home Nations events, the, the current dress code they have there. I, I was aware before the tournament was it was happening. But it was only about three days into it that it, I actually even noticed it. I'd completely forgotten about it. Because as you've always said, once the snooker actually starts, no one's actually thinking about what anyone's wearing. And, of course, we went through that bizarre phase about 20 years ago when various administrations and marketing people thought that there were millions to be made and addressing the players completely revamped the game. Well, it didn't work at all. So I think, again, we always come back to saying the same thing, don't we? It's, it's, it's very much a peripheral issue. Yeah, one thing I will say, and this is entirely personal prejudice, if you've got a tattoo, keep it covered up. We don't need to see it. Yeah, uh, <laughs> yeah. Um, I'm going to wrap this up soon because it, the quality, I'm not saying of the chat, obviously, but uh, the uh, the actual broadcast, if you want to call it that, isn't great this week. Um, we'll have to up our game next week for reasons I'll reveal shortly. Uh, but we're going to end. David Burney, actually, I, 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 I couldn't find that email last week. He sent it to me again. It was David in Canada who sent it. Um, this takes us back to what we were talking about with David Tyndall earlier. He said, uh, I'm a traditionalist and really enjoy everything snooker is and everything in it. That being said, when we mention snooker as a global game, how can the world how can the world tune into the World Championship final on a Monday? That's just a holiday in Britain. I love the long matches of the worlds, the different formats of each tournament to give their own flavour. But come May, I always have to play hooky from work. Fortunately, in Western Canada, it isn't the hot news on everyone's mind. So there are times when I can watch it when I get home from work. But you can't beat watching live sport as it happens. Maybe I should get in touch with the Canadian government to give us a holiday on the first Monday in May. Call it Thorburn Day. Well, so this is what we mentioned last week about the Monday finish. Yeah, I mean, I suppose we do forget in Britain um, that the rest of the world, you know, don't have the day off. Um, it's a bit odd to finish on Monday. I think there are there are the old golf events, isn't there, that finish on Mondays? And uh... Uh, Yeah, the, the PGA Championship yeah. actually used to finish at the end of... Um... On the the Monday, it's the bank holiday at the end of May, but that stopped actually after 2001. I think, funnily enough, going back to what we were saying earlier, I think that was something to do with the the Queen's Jubilee. But yeah. um, I've always yeah, thought, I've always thought, okay, if you were going to change it, you could finish on a Sunday. I always thought you could, and this has happened. This happened when when Knowles beat Davis. You could start the World Championship not on a Saturday morning, but on a Friday night. So you start live, you know, on TV at seven o'clock on the Friday night. Um, it would have surely a bigger audience than 10 o'clock on a Saturday morning. You know, the defending champion walks out on the Friday. You'd have to rejig it. Maybe you'd have to cancel a couple of the the mornings off, which wouldn't be popular with with, the, with everyone who works at the, at the Crucible. You could start a 17-day event, but it just starts on that Friday night, and then maybe you could finish on the Sunday. But again, you know, the, it's easy for me to say. People have got to work this out. I do get the point David's making, though. If it's a world championship and it's finishing on a Monday, there are people who... 
you know, maybe we'll we'll not get the full experience as you would in Britain, where it's a bank holiday and you get the day off work. Yeah. Well, I mean, delighted to hear from Dave Burney about this, because if he ever gets his wish and the final is Saturday and Sunday, he can watch the whole thing. It could be quite a weekend of Burnies. Oh, yeah, well, there we go. But actually, funny, we're, we're going to come back to something else there, because this ties in with what we were saying earlier about why certain world championships didn't finish on the bank holiday Monday. And we're on a Sunday instead. One of those was 1990 when Stephen Hendry won it for the first time. And I do know for a fact that on the bank holiday Monday afternoon, the BBC were showing the final round of a European Tour golf event, the Benson and Hedges International Open. So they clearly were open to having a sporting event on bank holiday Monday. But why did it not happen? Just adds to the intrigue. Speaking of intrigue. <laughs> OK, um, there's going to be a slight change to the podcast, hopefully from next week. Uh, we were approached by some lovely people uh, from a company called Sports Social. They're building a network of podcasts from all different sports and they want them to be sort of housed under their umbrella, and they wanted us to be their snooker podcast. Uh, and, I, and I said to them, no chance at all, you know, we have more integrity than, than to just, you know, go to the first people who come to us. And then they said, well, there may be a few quid in it. And I said, oh, <laughs> well, where, where do we sign? Mm. No, that's not quite what happened at all. But basically, the podcast will be exactly the same. That's the bad news, maybe. The, the, the actual content is not going to change. It's going to be the same nonsense as it's always been. There may be the odd advert inserted at the start and in the middle. You know, I'm sure people can deal with that. Other than that, wherever you get the podcast from, hopefully, if everything works, you'll still get it uh, from the same place. We'll still be on it. We're not going to be told what to say. It's not nothing like that. But just to, to flag that up, there may be the odd advert. Here's the thing. It may actually sound slightly more professional. <laughs> I know that's hard to believe. But... Wait, are, we get... are we getting other people to do it from yeah, now on? Yeah, indeed. Uh, Hazel's going to be doing it. No, no. So, so yeah. So, th- th- I just thought I'd flag that up. Believe me, um, the, the monetary w- rewards we've been told are not big. But, uh, you know, they'd be bigger than nothing. Put it that way. Uh, so, yeah. But that's it, really. There's no, no other change. Uh, and like I say, the, the content is the, same, is the same stuff. And, of course, you can get in contact... With us at any time, snookerscenepodcast at mail.com, snookerscenepodcast at mail.com. Anyone else who's kept a diary from when they were young? Because uh, the great thing with diaries is obviously you don't see the context immediately as you're writing it. So you can literally, you know, you can literally just say, as, as Dave did about that final, just throw it away with another sporting event. Um, so, yeah, any any of that, get, get in touch. Uh, there's got a lot of other emails that I'm not going to get to now, purely because, as I said, the connection is only just about holding out. Uh, I've got nothing against Milton Keynes, but the, the hotel Wi-Fi is not the best. Um, but that's it. So, as I say, next week, all being well, it'll be a brand new era. Um, but for, as for this week, enjoy the Players' Championship. Um, can Jordan Brown do a Doug Mountor? That would be incredible, wouldn't it? His waistcoat's turned up, by the way, I asked him. It, it has arrived, so he can... <laughs> can play his full part but for now it's goodbye bye sports social podcast network with lucky landslots you can get lucky just about anywhere dearly beloved we are gathered here today to has anyone seen the bride and groom sorry sorry we're here we were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time no lucky land casino with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry in that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.
Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, Lil. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.